Hey, listeners, welcome to another episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Today, we're going to a state that uh, we haven't visited in on the podcast before. We're going down to Virginia. And to show us around a little bit, we're going to Ironclad Distilling, and we've got distiller Owen King on with us. Owen, welcome. Thanks for having me. So I'm not exactly sure how I got introduced to Ironclad. I think um, Kara might have reached out, or I might have reached out to Kara. I'm not exactly sure. But... Um, I was really happy when we got connected because again, I hadn't spoken to a distillery in Virginia. Um, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think um, Matt Vernon kind of gets the the lion's share of the Virginia distilling press, if you will. Uh, <laughs> I would say between the, them and A. Smith Bowman, yeah. Uh, fair enough, yeah, those do. Uh, and uh, so, you know, I hadn't really heard about them before, about Ironclad, but as I love, you guys have a fantastic story. I got to try a bunch of the products, which uh, I particularly loved. You know, I particularly love the, I got to say up front, the old Colonel and the Flying Fox winery finish. Oh yeah. Um, but we'll get to those a little bit later. So um, why don't you just walk us through the basics? You know, what was the, the distillery's origin story? Yeah. So <clears throat> you can go back to 2014 is when we opened the distillery. Um, so my dad, about 15 years ago, bought this 30,000 square foot warehouse in located in downtown Newport News. And so he had another business operating out of there. And uh, as busy as his other business ever was, he was never utilizing all 30,000 square foot square feet of these where of this warehouse. Mm -hmm. And so we were trying to think, uh, so after I graduated college, I came down to work for him. And, um, and so we, you know, we were, kicking around the idea, you know, at night when we were sitting around drinking bourbon, thinking, what can we do to really maximize the potential of this building? And the one thing we kept coming back to was, you know, how hard could it be to open a bourbon distillery? Now, you know, those are very famous, like last <laughs> words, but um, so one day I walked into work and he's like, Hey, by the way, I bought a still. And I was like, okay, great. We're bootleggers now. <laughs> um, and so the, the still arrived. It was just a little 26 gallon hillbilly still. Um, as soon as it arrived, it also came with all this paperwork saying, you cannot use this still. Um, <laughs> it is a federally illegal um, and to, you know, you have to go through all the paperwork to become a actual distillery. So once we read that, we're like, okay, we don't really want to go to jail. So um, we decided let's go ahead and get our distiller's permit and see how this thing goes. Uh, so we got our distillery permit, took about a year. Um, and because at that time there was much fewer there are much fewer distilleries and much fewer people working at the ttb to you know push push along uh distillery licenses and um so we got it started distilling liked what we were making and uh but then realized that 26 gallons was making to fill a 53 gallon barrel was taking us like two months so we're like all right this is not gonna work um so we went and bought five more stills just like it um which uh the you know our kind of model distillery was Kings County up in Brooklyn. Um, okay. and so they started the pretty much the exact same way we did. And, uh, so we went up there to just kind of talk to them and get their idea of how to expand, how to do everything, how to make sure these were, you know, we could monetize these. Um, and, uh, they gave us, they were open books. They liked what we were making. Um, uh, Colin Spolman was incredibly helpful. 
Uh, and, you know, it's, I used to email him constantly just asking him like, what do I do here? I've got a problem here. I've got, and he would help me put out the fire here and there. Um, and so he was, that was really helpful. And uh, then we were just thinking that, you know, if we were, if we're going to make this thing work, we really need to have a decent size still. Uh, so about three years ago, we bought a 500 gallon still, um, which, you know, is still the incredibly small side of craft, but it, it allows us to kind of control our own destiny. Um, so we're, we're putting away a 53 gallon barrel a day, um, which is good for us. I mean, we're, we're happy with that production where it's at right now. So after the, uh, as you put it, the, uh, the hillbilly still, and um, what came after, what was the, what does the still setup look like now? So what we did is we had five stills running in succession uh, that were all pot stills. And then the lab, they'd all run into a column still, four plate column still. And uh, so we want, we really liked the, the, the distillate that was coming off of those. And so we wanted to mimic that same still. So we have a combination still. So it's a 500 gallon pot still with a, com uh, with a column attached to it. Um, so we get a double distillation similar to that of what we'd had with the hillbilly stills. Um, and uh, it, I'm, I'm still really happy. And I, I mean, I like the stuff coming off this still. I like a whole lot more than the stuff that came off the old stills. Uh, and uh, from from uh, Vendome Forsyths? No, so sure. this one's from Affordable Distilling Equipment. Um, they're based out of Missouri uh, and uh, assembled in America, but fabricated in China. Gotcha, gotcha. I think I know another distillery up here that um, up here in New York that also uses from them. So that answers who is creating distilling equipment in Missouri. So thank you for that. <laughs> um, jumping back a little bit. Uh, so Kings County, uh, oddly enough, you know, it's one of my, it's one of the distilleries that kind of changed my journey in, in whiskey and in bourbon. Yeah, definitely. Um, and uh, ironic, well, timing wise, surprisingly enough, um, I had an episode that I taped with them back last year, thought I lost it, found it. So that's actually going to be, it'll be a couple of weeks back from when this episode airs, but um, it's going to be kind of an archival lost episode uh, nice. coming out in three days. So, but yeah, I love Colin, love what he's, he's doing there. Um, I don't always love some of the products, but that's, that's just my own tastes. Um, no one loves some, everything from every distillery. Exactly. Yeah. You, I mean, I love four roses, but I don't love everything. I don't love the yellow label for roses. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I will, however, later this month be camping out for the, for uh, Kings County's seven-year-old. Um, the bottle and bond. Uh, not well, that one, if I can, but I'm really going after the odored whiskey. Oh yeah. I just saw that one really uh, that, the other day. That one sounds incredibly interesting. Um, yeah. yeah I, I, that one does sound really cool. I, mean, I, I had their last batch of oat whiskey, the one that they said they would never make again. And then, uh, which clearly, you know, not the case. And, uh, I, it's also the, the day after I come back from Kentucky. So, uh, it's going to be quite a turnaround, but I'm, I'm I, I, from my experience, every time I get back from Kentucky, I do want to do not want to see or hear a bourbon for quite a while. <laughs> true. Very true. Very true. So, um, you know, just to, to round out that topic, uh, you, you know, you said you love what they were doing. Uh, Colin, of course, as I hear from pretty much everyone who interacts with him, open book, happy to ask and answer questions. Uh, was there anything else um, that you that you took from, uh, you know, took directly from Kings County in terms of how you wanted to set things up, or your even 
barrel choices or anything else that kind of inspired you? So I, we read Colin's book to start the distillery. That was, that was where we got kind of our base knowledge of how to distill. Um, and, and he, you know, gives the, and his, and the guide to urban moonshining, he gives exactly, you know, detailed notes on how to do everything, how to set up the still, how to run it, how to mash, how to everything you might need. Um, and so he was really helpful. We, we were using turbo yeast to begin with, cause we just wanted to make sure we were actually going to ferment. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's, you know, when he tastes our stuff, he said, oh, I can taste the turbo yeast in this, but uh, he hooked us up with a, with a really cool um, craft uh, yeast purve- uh, purveyor. And so we started using them. Um, and then they, they're, uh, I think other people knew about them. So their demand got, well, you know, skyrocketed and we were so small that we were the first to get kicked out. Um, we now use uh, Wilderness Trail um, Firm Solutions yeast strains, um, mm-hmm. which I, I love Wilderness Trail. They do some really cool stuff over there. Um, uh, absolutely. But uh, it was just, I mean, anytime I ran into a problem with the hillbilly stills, he had already ran into that problem. So um, it was just a really useful resource to email him when I had a problem and be like, you know, how did you fix this? And then he would be like, okay, well, this is what we did to fix that. And then just looking at his setup and cause he had, at, at, by the time we went to go visit him, he was already out of the hillbilly stills. Um, and he had his two, God, I think there were 250 Vendome um, stills, uh, the the um, pot stills, and which is he's he's upgraded since then, uh, since those. Uh, but it was just you know we were we had the idea and the vision of like okay, this is where we're potentially going um, to kind of continue to follow in their footsteps because they've been super successful and so uh, it kind of gave us a proof of concept that this could grow the way we want it to grow. It makes sense. Makes sense. And so the, you know, the next thing before we jump uh, kind of into the historical aspect of where you are, um, Ironclad is in Newport News, Virginia. So Southern portion of Virginia. Um, If I'm picturing it right, it's about as South as you can go. If I remember. Very close. Yeah. Very close. Um, And you're in the, in the city. So we're in downtown, uh, you know, anywhere else downtown, it sounds like it's a city, uh, mm-hmm. but Newport News is seven miles wide, 13 miles long. We're in the industrial area, um, which was in the sixties, you know, a very big hub, um, for dignitaries and all this stuff, because that's where all the ships were being built for the Navy. Um, mm-hmm. and so now, or you, if you fast forward through the eighties and nineties, kind of fell in hard times because the shipyard kind of took over the whole area. And so it was just a spot for work and mm-hmm. they, um, and there, there was no like thriving businesses down there. Um, so now we're, we're kind of right across from city hall, uh, which is, that's where, which is uh, kind of good, kind of bad at the same point. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, so it's it's a downtown area, but it's not necessarily a bustling, you know, business center. It's just you can drive down there and you can see, oh, look, there's five aircraft carriers down here right now, which is more the aircraft carriers than there are anywhere else in the world at this point, which is kind of kind of always kind of a cool thing to see <laughs> in the morning. Absolutely. And I'd imagine being, you know, that close to aircraft carriers and uh, of course very heavy navy presence and also being across the street from City Hall, I'd imagine you're uh your codes are a little stricter than normal. Well, 
Newport News had never had a distillery um, and they, they only had, they have one right now. So when we <clears throat> were going through to get uh, our permits from the city to distill, uh, they threw the book at us and they were like, you know, we have to do everything by the code because that's what the code says. And we're like, well, you have to look at it in one way, then yes, you know, that's what the code says. So we'd, we'd follow that. But you have to also kind of think that there are, and the, our building is made of concrete brick. It's not going to burn down. Um, you know, I mean, the contents in it might catch fire, but, uh, you know, that's, that's a, a different problem. Uh, but so they, you know, there were, there were little things here and there. And luckily, uh, eventually they would see eye to eye with us because they kind of saw that the writing on the wall that, this could potentially revitalize uh, the downtown area of Newport News um, of bringing tourism and people down here to an area that, and, and bring other businesses down to an area that, you know, was kind of forgotten. Um, so luckily now, since, since we've opened, uh, we've got a brewery, two restaurants, um, a whole bunch of uh, apartments just got built. Um, so there, you know, there is a, sort of revitalization of downtown Newport News. And I'm not saying that's because of us, but at least it, there was something that wanted that drove other people down here towards us. That makes, makes absolute sense. Uh, and uh, last question before we go into the history too is, uh, I am curious, I don't think I saw this on the website, but um, did your family have naval connections? No, uh, we have no naval connections. We just, uh, we were talking that, um, the reason we're called ironclad is because in 1862, March 9th, 1862 was uh, the battle, the, the first ever battle between two ironclad ships, which is the USS monitor and the CSS Virginia. And so we were talking to uh, the Mariners museum, which is in Newport news. They actually have the turret of the USS monitor in their museum. And uh, we were talking to the elite historian there and they said, you know, from your building, you would add a front row seat to watch that battle take place. And so when we were pitching ideas of what to name the distillery, we kind of came across that history and we thought, you know, that really ties in the area. And with, especially with the naval, um, naval base we have so close, kind of ties them in as well. So we thought that would be the best name for the distillery. So that's why we went with Ironclad. Gosh, gotcha. I, I asked that, um, uh, of course, not to put you on the spot. It was more because uh, one of our about to be recent guests uh, was uh, old line spirits out of mm -hmm. Maryland. Yeah, yeah. And, know them very and, well. Yeah, yeah. So you know, um, you know, Mark and Archer, uh, ex Navy Airmen, um, but they kind of downplay the uh, the military association. It's very subtle in in their bottlings. They got Bravo Bravo Zulu on there, but otherwise it's kind of um, muted. I guess is the word I want to use. Yeah. Um, but uh, I do love in both cases the historical connections. So um, you know, we'll come back to the uh to the monitor but uh, i wanted to jump back a little further and this was uh based on uh, listening to a podcast you did um, it was a local podcast in virginia uh, i think last year and it was really telling how the you know the distilling history of virginia as a whole but also divided between when kentucky was a part of virginia <laughs> versus afterwards so I'd love you to just, you know, run us through that if you could. Yeah. So we always say that Virginia is the birthplace of American spirits because uh, they landed in Jamestown like 1618. Um, and 
they had the rations of beer they brought over with them from England and uh, they get here, they drink all that. Um, and now they're desperate to, you know, have more alcohol. Um, so there was a, they brought up this guy from, from England. Uh, his name is George Thorpe, uh, who was a, a preacher and then also knew the process of distillation. So they noticed there was just tons of corn around there. So they, they decided to make a corn beer. They drank it. It was awful. And then they're like, oh, well, you know what the next step to this is? Let's distill it. Um, so they distilled this corn beer, which is essentially what bourbon is. Um, and so the first drop of bourbon was made at Berkeley Plantation uh, in like 1620. Um, and, uh, you know, there is um, a little bit this, this. So there is historical uh, uh, documents of this saying that it could it could be it. Um, but also that he may have put it into a five gallon keg, uh, but it doesn't necessarily say if it was his distillate or if it was his corn beer. Um, but either way, so, you know, the first drop of bourbon was made here in Virginia. Uh, my other part I like to say is, you know, uh, Elijah Craig, who's kind of like the godfather, the grandfather of bourbon, um, was born in Fairfax County, Virginia. And then uh, the first distillation in Kentucky took place uh, 1783, uh, which at that point, Kentucky was still a part of Virginia because um, Kentucky didn't become a state until 1792. Um, so again, birthplace of bourbon is Virginia. Hey, that's, that's not only accurate, it is very fair. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and um I, I'm thinking back, I did get the chance to visit uh, A. Smith Bowman a couple of, I guess about two months ago now, um, just briefly, but that wasn't really a part of the historical context that they put out. It was from them, it was more about their distillery in particular um, and the history forward, but not so much the fact that, you know, as you said, before 1792, Kentucky is part of Virginia. So uh, the... We have to remember who their parent company is. Of course, of course, and and we won't have to, we won't get into that. But of course, you're right. Uh, so, so agree. The you know the first what we would what we would consider bourbon as made in in Virginia. Um, what if anything kind of changed after Kentucky separated from Virginia in terms of distilling history? Uh, you know my my knowledge of distilling history. So I imagine um, after. Kentucky became a state. Uh, there was still farmers distilling corn um, because that's what every every farmer had to sell because they were using all the leftover grain that they'd have at the end of the harvest and they would distill it up and that would be their liquor for the year. Um, I, I can't tell you exactly what all uh, was continued to be distilled here in Virginia between 1792 and 1920. Um, but it was probably a lot of Applejack, I would guess, uh, because we have tons of orchards and all that stuff. There was probably still plenty of corn liquor being made. Um, but uh, the amount of distilleries in Virginia was, there weren't many uh, that were operating a mass scale. I mean, A. Smith Bowman, I believe, um, was one of the bigger ones, uh, you know, that started, what, what was it, 1940 or something like that, right after Prohibition? Um, that, and then they were, I think, the only gig in town for a while. Um, but I could be wrong about that. Yeah, it's still, it's still impressive. Uh, yeah. So 
jumping jumping forward now uh what does the kind of the modern distilling landscape in virginia look like yeah so um we have at last count it's going up every day i we have over 80 distilleries in the state um which is awesome uh we were number 15 and number 20 um when we signed up back in 2014 and uh so it's really cool i mean there's there's a lot of distilleries that are kind of doing their own thing. Uh, you know, we have one distillery that makes it a fantastic, a fantastic absinthe. Um, we do have, you know, a, a macro distillery that, you know, that are, that are, they're still technically craft uh, with a Smith Bowman. So, you know, we do still have that really big presence, um, but they're really cool. They're super helpful, really nice people. Um, they have, they usually try to have an event that brings all the craft distilleries to their distillery. Um, so everyone can kind of have a, an event there with, um, selling bottles and things like that, which is really nice to them because people love going to Ace Smith Bowman. And then we've got, you know, the, the bigger craft, uh, guys like Catoctin Creek and, uh, uh, Copper Fox and who else am I forgetting? Um, so, I mean, we, we've got some really bigger distilleries, uh, our bigger craft distilleries. And then we've also got the small guys who get just to go out there and, you know, make, Ostervit, which is a aquavit made with oysters. So it's, it's, there's a whole bunch of really cool, you know, very craft niche things. And then there's also the bigger, um, you know, greater ma- uh, mass distillation, consistently flavor or consistent consistent flavor um, bottles. An aquavit of oysters. I, I like, I get it. I get it because of what, where it is, but I, I, I don't get it. Um, it's actually then, really good. I know it sounds weird. It was really good. Look, that there was a, um, uh, where was it? I forget where it was, but it was recently there was a uh, green crab whiskey. Oh, yeah. Uh, that was up in Maine or, uh, or Maine. Massachusetts. It, one of the two. Yeah. I just in, saw that it was a whiskey. Uh-huh, <laughs> I don't know yep. how they how they got that one passed, but that's, I, yeah. I, I don't know either. I support what they're trying to do with it. I don't really <laughs> want to try it. I'm, I'm open to trying most things. Yeah. good or bad but i just mm, nope i'm good um that and the uh the whiskey from the beaver glands also oh, I'm yeah. okay I'll, I'll stick to my my uh regularly scheduled programming on those <laughs> uh so in terms of of virginia um obviously it's you know it's quite a large state it's so it's going to be geologically and ecologically diverse but um from what for what ironclad is trying to do and and is producing um what does your environment look like and and the climate that you have to deal with so the one thing since we started that i was that i really cared about was i wanted to use only local grains um so we reached out to the virginia department of agriculture when we first started and uh, i said this is what i'm looking for i need a farmer who can provide me with these grains um can you point me in that direction and they were very helpful pointing me immediately to this one farmer um, his name is Dave Hula. Uh, he's in Charles city, Virginia, and he wins. He he's got world records for, uh, corn production, um, like corn yield, uh, on, off the corn kernel. And so he just does this every year, year in, year out and knows corn better than anyone I know. And he has, you know, thousands of acres. He also still farms the longest farmed land in America. Um, for the uh, for Williamsburg, uh, the Colonial Williamsburg, 
Um, and so I met with him and I said, listen, I, I, I want to make a four grain bourbon uh, because I want to make sure sh I'm showcasing uh, agriculture from Virginia to show how great Virginia agriculture is. And so he goes, well, I can do corn and I can do wheat for you. I have those, you know, all the time. Uh, he goes, the rye, um, I'm a seedsman. So uh, rye, if, if, if I, you know, plant rye and my rye gets cross pollinated with my wheat, um, people will never buy wheat from me again. And I was like, okay, well, do you have a local farmer who can, you can source rye from? And he goes, oh yeah, definitely. And so uh, he was like, no problem. So he, he had all the, all the grains I needed. Um, he tried growing malted barley or malting barley. Um, but he didn't realize that when you grow malted barley, uh, or malting barley, uh, you want to grow it very low in protein, which is the opposite of what he does with everything else. Right. And so he sends it off to sample for to see if it can malt. And they go, this is incredibly high in protein. We cannot malt this. And so he, he, you know, tried it, didn't work. He's like, Oh, well, here we go. Uh, so we get our malt from, uh, a few different, different maltsters. Uh, we do try to get some local Virginia, uh, malt every, every once in a while. Um, but most of our malt comes from Northwest. Hey, look, understandable. It's, it's a familiar, uh, train I've heard from a bunch of distillers who, who are trying to do exactly what you're doing. You know, the local grain is the local grain and you take that as far as you can, but at a certain point, if it's not there, I mean, it's, it's not there. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's trying to cry, trying to uh, grow rye in Kentucky. It just doesn't. It doesn't, doesn't work. take well. Doesn't yeah. work there. Um, so Virginia, also, uh, you know, you're dealing with these. Uh, I would think very humid, hot summers. Yep. Um, uh, you know, do you get the kind of temperature variations you would get in in what we think of as bourbon region in Kentucky? Uh, we're pretty similar. We don't get as cold. We'll get less snow than Kentucky gets, or, or mm -hmm. yeah, mo more off, or most of Kentucky gets. Um, so our climate is very co uh, comparable. Um, but yeah, it, it, it works out that we're still getting those great fluctuations. And it's not like we're Texas where they have a month straight of 100 degrees. We'll still fluctuate between, you know, 182 and sometimes a little lower than that, then sometimes back up. And so we're, it's, it's, we've got that same moniker that if you don't like the weather in Virginia, wait five minutes um, <laughs> and it will, it will change. Uh, and then we were also in the hurricane path, which is always fun when it comes, when hurricanes come through, because you can walk into the barrel room and you can literally hear the, the barrels cracking because the, the fluctuation and pressure that's coming mm. through. Um, and that's always my, one of my favorite things to listen to is just to hear the, hear the little crack, 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 crack. That must be, I mean, all, all kidding aside, that must be somewhat terrifying when you hear that. <laughs> like, is it, do you, is it to a level where they, where you expect them to crack and, and burst or is it more no, like micro cracks? It's, it's like micro cracks. Like you can just hear like the expansion of the wood. Gotcha. Do you at least get some good leaky barrels out of it? Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. Oh. Just as long, as long as there's not puddles on the floor. We're okay. Mm -hmm. I don't just a few drops. That's all right. All right. That's good. I love those, love those leaky barrels. Yes. Um, and which actually we'll get back to you in a second. Cause I want to definitely bring that up later. Uh, but the last thing I wanted to do with the environment was your uh, water source. So, and I, so, I asked that because you're, you talk about on the website um, that the air at least is very, 
you know, it's important because of the brackish James River that you're on. Um, so I'd love, love to talk about your water. Yeah, so Newport News City Water uh, is, is our main water source, uh, which actually the water itself is really good. Um, we still, it still has chloramines in it. It still has chlorine in it. So we have double carbon filters that take out all that stuff um, because those are, those will hinder fermentation. Um, but the, the proximity of our distillery, which is 200 yards from the James river um, is, which is a brackish water river and where we're at, it's the salty part of the, the river. Um, it, it really adds, I think a characteristic and I, I, there's not this terroir is more spoken about in, in wines and things like that. Uh, and so I, but I do think that there is a certain terroir at least environment wise um, for how barrels age. And um, so with that salty brackish air that's, that's constantly flowing over the barrels, um, I really think that kind of adds a certain characteristic to the whiskey. Um, so I always like to kind of speak about that in my tours that I'm giving is that there's not a ton of distilleries. There are zero distilleries in Kentucky that are sitting on a brackish water river. Um, sure. <laughs> so I just like to make sure that I just point on that point at that little, uh, thing. And just, just as something that's a little different because, um, you know, as much as everyone wants to be like a distillery in Kentucky, I also want to be an individual, um, that isn't necessarily the same as anyone else. Hey, totally fair. And, uh, just in, in your estimation, before I add in any, or before I write up any tasting notes quite yet, um, I have them, but I want to. I always do two or three times. So I want to make sure I get it again. What, uh, what is that impact of, of the brackish water? Like, does it impart any kind of salinity or, um, uh, that's where I kind of think it kind of comes in, at least in our small batch, it kind of comes in as a salted caramel. Um, mm-hmm. that's, that's the kind of note I get with it. Um, with our straight, it's, it's just kind of like a little bit of a salinity, um, flavor because our straight tends to have more of a cinnamon forward note instead of that kind of, um, sweeter caramel note that I get in our small batch, even though the same mash bill, and, and that could be those two flavors just cause they're two different, uh, types of Oak or two different, um, barrel sizes. Um, but yeah, I always like, I always like think that there's a little bit of salted caramel in the back end, um, of our small batch and a little bit of salinity in the, uh, in the straight. Gotcha. Gotcha. I mean, that makes sense. And I'll be honest, it, it took me off guard. Um, and this is why I wanted you to say it first, cause I wasn't sure if that was what was happening, but, um, I did notice it a bit when I tried the small batch for the first time and, uh, it caught me off guard to, to be honest. And I wasn't exactly sure what I was having. It's like that first time you try something with a little bit of peat in it mm-hmm. and you're like, that's new. What is that? And to have this, that, as you pointed out, like no one in Kentucky is on a brackish water source. So um, no one in Kentucky is having any kind of salinity in their, in their air or their humidity. So um, it was a little bit different and it took me on the first try. I wasn't sure about it. The second try, I kind of got that better and I could nail down that note. Um, And once it was explained, like, but by you just now also, and just kind of thinking about like, what would a brackish water source do? Um, it makes a lot more sense in terms of the flavor profile mm-hmm. and it made it, you know, that much more interesting because I'm like, oh, that's what that flavor is coming from. So going back, it added, yes, salt to caramel. Uh, and it's not, it's not like, you know, licking a salt lick or something. It, it's just a hint. Yeah. 
just to him. Uh, but it was, uh, it was fascinating. And it's really a differentiator, which uh, I like, I like when, especially water sources for some reason, water sources and grain sources. I love talking about differentiations there. Yeah. No, I, I, so we've been messing around a lot with, uh, heritage corns. Um, today I just mashed, um, a, it's called Hickory King corn. It's a white corn, but the kernels are like two and a half times bigger than a normal, like dent yellow field corn number two. Um, and so it's just, we, we've messed around with now four or five different kinds of corn. And it always amazes me of just that you change one little thing or one ingredient in your whole mash bill and the whole thing is different. Um, which is why I love messing around with these different corns because, uh, it's just these things that you, we're, we're obligated by law to have 51% corn in our mash bill. And then you go ahead and make it with a different corn. And then all of a sudden you've got a completely different bourbon. Um, mm-hmm. even though you're using a, maybe essentially the same mash bill. Uh, so this is my, one of my favorite things to do is just to continue to try these different corns, um, of which I've been able to find a lot of, uh, that are being grown around in Virginia. Do you, uh, do you find that you have to change the mash bill significantly from one to the other, or are you able to kind of keep the same mash bill and end up with that different product? So we're going to jump ahead, but since we're talking about the old kernel, um, the old kernel is a corn we got from the Eastern shore of Virginia. Um, and so this one, they can date back the first time it was grown in Virginia was 1865. Um, so it's, I mean, all corn is genetically modified. Um, so it's, it's tough to say that, you know, this isn't genetically modified, but this isn't genetically modified in the, in the sense that it hasn't been uh, modified to be efficient. Um, so this is a multicolored Indian corn, um, that's red, purple, white, blue, uh, yellow. It's got all the colors in it. And when I first got the corn, they gave, they gave us some of their cornmeal first. I made cornbread with it and I didn't add any sugar to it, uh, because the corn is so naturally sweet. Mm. And so, uh, when I was tasting, when I was doing this one, I was like, well, this is a really cool corn. That's very naturally sweet. I don't necessarily want to do all these different um grains in here because i want the corn to be what you taste the most of and so but i knew i didn't want it to be one noted of only corn because you need like, like cooking you want other things in there to kind of bring out the other bring out those flavors so i was like let's just do a low rye here uh 10 or 12 um just to kind of add background notes to make sure this balances everything out to make sure that it is the best it can possibly be. Um, and so when it came off the still, I was drinking it at one fifty-six, somewhere around there. And, um, it was still incredibly naturally sweet. Uh, so I, like, I was like, okay, that's perfect. So, um, the Hickory King that I was, that I was mashing today, uh, was 16% rye. Um, because I, it was the, Originally, when the farmer gave it to us, he only had a certain amount of Hickory King corn. This was a couple of years ago. He only had a certain amount of corn left, and then he also had a certain amount of Abruzzi rye left. He put them together in the same bag and said, I'll give this to you for, you know, uh, I was like 35 cents a pound. Um, I just I just don't want to go. I don't want it to go to feed. And I was like, well, I don't want that either for this beautiful grains to go to feed. Um, so I came up, got that all milled together. We mashed that. And it was very different because the corn had a such more earthier note to it um, instead of that, instead of what I was used to with the super sweet notes that I got from the, uh, um, the old kernel corn. 
And then uh, the other one I was doing was uh, we got Bloody Butcher and um, I had just gotten back from uh, Bardstown Bourbon Company and I had tried their one of their white dogs and it was when I tried it, it was just like the best white dog I've ever had. And at Bardstown Bourbon Company, they're complete open book, uh, mostly because they're trying to be a production distillery. Um, and so I was asking them about it and they said, I said, could I get this recipe? And they said, of course. So they gave me the recipe of, of their percentages of corn to wheat to uh, malted barley. And I took a picture of that. And as soon as I got home, I had this uh, bloody butcher corn. And I was like, I'm going to recreate that mash bill with uh, the bloody butcher to kind of do my own twist on it. Um, and so I think everything needs to have a different mash bill to it. Um, but that being said, if you, I mean, you could try something else with the yellow field corn and, uh, you know, try that with the same mash bill and then just do a comparison. You can actually at least see how drastically different and how big of the an impact the actual the grains actually do make in the bourbon, which I mean, outside, I mean, usually you think the barrel is where the majority of the flavor is coming from, which is true, but those subtleties of flavor and the ones that you're really going to, would make you really like bourbon are, is where that mash bill come is where the mash bill comes in. I mean, I, I really love the, the old kernel that I got to try. <clears throat> and it, it's funny because this conversation kind of de- dovetails with uh, other recent ones that I've had, which are, um, you know, one or two discussions about rye and rye varietals that are being revived. Uh, of course, Rosen being the most famous, but there are others yep. as well. And then uh, with uh, wheat, when I was talking to, um, to Ryan over at Middle West Spirits, talking about how wheat should really be explored more in terms of, you know, it's not all red winter, soft red winter wheat. Yeah. You know, there, there are the varieties out there and uh, there's, there's been kind of exploration with the corn, you know, Jeff, the Creed putting out a bloody butcher. Um, that was kind of the first one that people went to, it seems, because obviously it's, you know, bloody red and, and catches the eye and it, it's a really good it's name a cool for marketing. Name. Yeah. It's yeah. a cool name for marketing. Let's be honest. Um, but there are so many varieties that uh, we don't think about because most our taste buds for bourbon are kind of attuned to that yellow number, you know, dent number two. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, do you, it sounds like, you know, what you're doing is, is clearly purposeful. Like you're trying to get, when you use a different corn or different grain, you're trying to get the mash bill that's going to feature that particular corn or grain the, the best way. Oh, that yeah that's my idea behind it is i want i mean i want everything to be unique and i want the grains to really be able to shine um because these farmers that i'm working with are they're not these macro farmers that are growing acres it's it's they're kind of kind of mom, mom and pop farms that are have are maybe growing an acre of this or, or five acres of this and um and some of it's going to distilleries some of it's going to maybe a brewery um, and they, 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 there's not a ton of this grain that, so it's, it's not, I don't want it to be wasted. I want it to go to, you know, a good use of, uh, and having them get the kind of credit, uh, for growing these fantastic grains. Uh, not to, of course, throw anyone on any, well, it wouldn't be anyone, but any, uh, varietal under the, under the bus, but have there been corn varietals that you've tried that are just not good for producing whiskey? So not yet. Uh, I, everything I've done with the different corn, uh, I haven't, it hasn't come to age yet. 
Um, usually if I, if I, my, my analysis is if it tastes good coming off the still, the barrel is only going to help it. Um, I'm not, so bloody butcher isn't overly like incredible to me. Um, it tastes, it doesn't taste exactly like, you know, some variety, some heritage varietal of, of corn. It tastes more like dent to me. Um, mostly because I think it's, it, it's become over farmed and or not over farmed, but like it's become more genetically modified to become more, um, yield friendly and, and more efficient. Um, so I don't think it's bad. I just don't think it's been as cool as, you know, maybe this, the, my old kernel bourbon corn that I get, or, or what this, uh, Hickory King has been, um, but it's, I mean, it's just, just because I don't, I'm not that saying it's bad, just saying it's different or, sure, or sure. more the same of Dent. Oh, sure. Uh, of course, there's, there's an element of wanting to, it's a nice name and I'm sure it had something when it first, when the first kind of Bloody Butcher bourbons were coming out. But yep. um, yeah, I'll be, I'll be honest, I kind of agree. I, I haven't noticed that much variation, certainly in later batches of, or more recent ones, I should say, of there's not that much variation. Yeah. Or anything. Um, so the marketing still works, but uh, it's time to dig deeper. And it seems like, you know, you're clearly doing that, which is fascinating. The Whiskey Ring Podcast is proudly sponsored by Impex Beverages. Impex imports premium and rare whiskey, gin, rum, mezcals, liqueurs, and cordials from all over the world, from Scotland to Japan to Israel, Belgium, and Wales. Whether it's Kilhoman, Pandaren, Portiskeg, Glenallachy, Ohishi, Fukano, M&H, Ardnamurkin, Black Tot, and more, there's guaranteed to be something in the Impex portfolio you'll love. Impex also oversees some of the most prestigious independent bottlers in the game, including Single Malts of Scotland, Single Cast Nation, Adelphi Selection, and its own Impex collection. Take a look at their site, impexbev.com, or reach out if you're curious about their offerings. I'm proud to have many of their bottles on my shelves and love sharing them with friends whenever I can. Thank you to Sam and to the team for joining the Whiskering Podcast as guest and sponsor. And now a word from our newest sponsor. The most exclusive whiskey in the world can't be bought in a store. Born in Edinburgh, the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society is the world's largest whiskey club with over 30,000 members worldwide. They bottle each cask of whiskey as is. No diluting, no artificial coloring, or chill filtration. With new whiskeys released every week, the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society offers the opportunity to taste spirits straight from the cask. I've been a member for over two years now, and I've loved the chance to explore my favorite distilleries with truly unique offerings, in particular from distilleries 4 and 53, and discovering new single malts not available anywhere else. Not a Scotch fan? No problem. The Scotch Malt Whiskey Society releases 20-plus bottles each month to its members, including, yes, scotch, but also including gin, bourbon, rum, and more. In fact, my favorite recent bottling was a corn whiskey from the largest family-owned distillery in the U.S., aged 11 years in New Oak and bottled at cast strength. This is a bottling that people have clamored for for years, and it was only available to Scotch Malt Whiskey Society members. If you're interested in joining, the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society has graciously offered a discount to listeners of this podcast. Use code WRP, short for Whiskey Ring Podcast, 
at checkout for 20% off an annual membership at smwsa.com. That stands for Scotch Malt Whiskey Society of America. I will also be putting the link and code in my bio and show notes for this and upcoming episodes. Thank you to the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society for joining the Whiskey Ring Podcast as our newest sponsor. And please visit smwsa.com with code WRP for 20% off your annual membership. Uh, so when can we uh, when can we expect that Hickory King corn to come to market? So the first barrels, I'd like, so everything that goes into a 53 for us, I like to try to make sure it gets to at least four years before we empty it. So uh, that one is probably two and a half years away. Um, and then the ones I'm, uh, one I just mashed today is at least four. Um, we've got the, we've got the, the um, Pungo Indian Creek, Pungo Indian Creek corn, which is what we use for the old kernel. Um, that one is, is available now. This since that one went to 30 gallon barrels instead of 53s. So that one can go about three years before we, it has to come out. Um, we've got another batch of that coming out here, uh, sometime before Thanksgiving. Um, and then the next one I've just started messing around with is, uh, we do, we are making a rye or have made a rye. And so we're using a Brutzi rye. Um, and then I've got another varietal of rye that I'm getting sometime this year, uh, as soon as, it, as soon as it's done getting harvested and dried. Um, but I can't remember that off the top of my, uh, off the top of my head, what it's called, but it's not ro- rosin, but it starts with an R and it's not just rye. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, and it's not Danko either. Right? Hold on. I can actually look it up. The guy just, my farmer just texted to me. It is called. Oh, Ryman, R-Y-M-I-N, Ryman Rye. Hmm. He said, according to him, it's a good variety for whiskey. I've never, I had never, I had not heard of it. I, I haven't either. Um, I will have to look into that. So, I mean, that, that's kind of a surprise for me because I, I, I don't know if this was said outright, but uh, you know, on, on the website, you guys are pretty committed to, you want to make bourbon. Yeah. So I, that was, you know, our, our idea was, we only want to make bourbon. And then I got the itch to make a rye. Uh, so we're going to, when the rye comes out, which will be next year, uh, it's going to be called betrayal, <laughs> but it's a Fair. four grain. It's a four grain rye. Um, it matches our four grain uh, bourbon recipe uh, just in versus the, the grain uh, mash bill. So it's 70% rye, uh, 10% corn, 10% wheat, 10% malted barley. Um, and uh, so far of initial tastings, I'm very happy with it. Awesome. Awesome. I can't, I mean, it's surprising, but I, of course I can't wait to try it. Cause I love trying, I've been on a rye kick for the last like month or two. So oh, yeah. Got to get those nice minty green tea rye in the summer. Oh, they're the best. Those are pretty good. Yeah. Nice and refreshing. Yeah. Uh, so <clears throat> pardon me. So ooh, where to go next? Uh, so, just, you know, let's jump make sure to jump into the products themselves. Um, you know, we did talk about the old kernel, uh, but the 
you know, let's start with the with the small batch. Yeah. And you know, the small batch and I guess the um what was the yeah, let's just go with the small batch. Yeah. yeah. So uh, when we started, uh, like I said, like I said earlier, I wanted to make sure I was showcasing Virginia agriculture. So I wanted to do a four grain bourbon. Um, at the time when we were, when we were opening up, uh, I mean, there, there were four grain bourbons that existed, uh, and there were four grain bourbons that were aging. Um, but we, uh, we kind of wanted to separate ourselves from the rest of the pack. Uh, so we wanted, I wanted to do a four grain bourbon. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, we were, the, the mash bill we initially started out with was 70% corn, 10% wheat, 10% rye, 10% malted barley. Uh, we started mashing that. I liked it. We haven't changed it since. Um, so for the longest time, for about three years, um, we were only operating off of that one mash bill. Um, and then it's mostly because we were incredibly small and we didn't nearly have time to, uh, switch out mash bills to, uh, to fill other, you know, other barrels that we would just sit around or sit back and wait for a while. Um, so, uh, we started with just doing, um, 15 gallon barrels. Uh, we still do 15 gallon barrels, but, uh, we're, um, kind of doing less and less 15 gallon barrels every year and putting and laying down more and more 53s. Uh, but we would always focus on at least putting what, put it laying down a 53 gallon barrel every year. Um, and sometimes two to make sure that, cause I, my one goal was I always wanted, I always wanted to get to a bottled and bond bourbon um, because I just love the story of bottled and bond. I think it's really cool. Um, it was nice that the federal government, their first food and drug act ever was to make sure they said whatever was in a whiskey bottle was we certify as said as being in that whiskey bottle. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, the, we, and I, I knew 15s, four years and a 15 might not necessarily taste the best at that at, at four years. Um, so finally four years in we did, we are actually more, it was like six years in, we finally had a bottom of mod, but, um, yeah, so our four grain mash bill, uh, it's kind of been the, the base recipe we use for everything. So like, like any other craft distillery, we have a bunch of different finishes. Um, so after a couple of years of running with just our 15, our, our small batch barrel, our small batch and 15 gallon barrels, and then we started filling 30 gallon barrels. Those were going to be up for our straight bourbon. Um, so our straight bourbon, uh, we like to make sure it gets about two and a half years uh, in the 30s. Now everything for our straight bourbon is three years plus. Uh, and then for our finishes, uh, because we use very small producers, so like we have a maple syrup producer, uh, we have a guy who makes a habanero-infused honey, um, we have... Uh, um, we, we give our barrels to local apiaries in Hampton roads, which is the area we, uh, where the distillery is, uh, that we give, uh, the local honey or like local beekeepers, uh, so they can age their honey in them. And then they give them back to us. So we can do like a very hyper local, um, honey finished bourbon. Uh, then we also give our barrels to a coffee roaster. And so the nice thing about the 15 gallon barrels is, is these, these producers who are smaller, um, can fill those easily um, instead of having to fill a 53, which is to fill one, it would be almost six 15 gallon barrels. Mm. Um, or sorry, four 15 gallon barrels. Um, so it, that's what allows us to do some cooler stuff in the finishes and allows other people to kind of enhance their products um, by aging or getting that bourbon flavor out of our barrels. So, uh, you know, as, as much as I'd like to just go all 53s, um, it's not necessarily in the cards quite yet because 
I still really like our finishes and it'd be really hard to tell our, you know, coffee roaster or our, our honey, our honey guy to say, all right, we only have 53s now. Um, you've got to, you've got to buy a lot more beans and uh, you have to find a lot more bees to, uh, to fill these up. So, um, that's kind of the, the basis of, of our four grain mash bill. And then we started branching off from there. Gotcha. I mean, again, it makes putting it that way. It makes much more sense, I guess. And I hadn't really thought about it, but that does make it easier for partners where you trade. I mean, a brewery, for example, can pretty easily fill a 53 because that's, you know, there's thrown the beer in there, but if you're dealing with someone like beans or honey or something that's not as easily produced by volume, uh, yeah, small barrel makes sense. And, uh, and I got to admit, like I said, I I've, I've gotten to try the, um, AR hot honey yeah, and the, uh, flying Fox finish. Yeah. And, uh, I, I love both of them, but especially the flying Fox. Yeah. So the flying Fox one's done a bit differently. Um, where, uh, in Virginia, um, the, in the middle kind of Western part of the state, we do have a, a really nice area that makes, in my opinion, produces some fantastic wine. Um, I mean, it's not necessarily just my opinion. There's a lot of people out there who think Virginia makes really good wine. Um, but, uh, so I, I've gotten a really great relationship with, uh, this, uh, winemaker and, and winery. They're called Veritas. Uh, they have a sister winery called flying Fox. Um, and so, uh, when they empty barrels in the, in the winter, uh, they call me up and I will go the day they empty the barrel. I'll pick it up. I'll drive it back and I will refill it that day to make sure I'm maximizing the potential of that, of that barrel. Um, so we've done Petit Verdot, um, for the first three barrels. Um, and you know, Petit Verdot is, is very big, very robust, uh, nice and jammy, uh, got those nice black pepper notes. Um, so it, it pairs really well with the bourbon. Um, this will be the, f- or this year or next year will be the first time we've done a cab salve bear or yeah, no, sorry. Cab Franc barrel. Um, which again is also a very big red. Um, and I'm really excited to see how that one turns out and see how different it is than the fly, than the, uh, Petit Verdot. Um, but yeah, it's, it, I, it, I've been really lucky to become friends with them because they also make a vermouth. Um, and so they currently are aging their vermouth in our used bourbon barrels as well. Um, and so I'm, I'm very excited to one day finally get those barrels back. They've been sitting up there for about three years now. Um, and they, and every time I go up there and taste it, it just keeps getting better and better. So, uh, it's going to be really cool when we finally get those barrels back to refill and, uh, have some really cool vermouth finished bourbon. It's going to be like a, uh, Manhattan in a bottle. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. I, when I, uh, because I loved the flying Fox, the, I had the petite, petite, yeah, dose. um, unfortunately it sold out like everywhere. Can't find it anywhere, but yeah. So um, we, we had a barrel of it, uh, cause we, we usually do one to two barrels of it a year. Mm-hmm. And so we had a barrel, we just bottled it and we do some distribution in, in, uh, Connecticut and, um, there's a, there's a liquor store up there called BevMax. And, um, they, I, I just got back from some work withs up there and I got back and, uh, my, one of my reps called me and said, Hey, um, how much of the flying Fox do you have? And I said, well, how much do you need? He's like, well, I need, I need 24 cases. And I was like, Oh God, I, I don't know if I have that, but I'll, I'll, I'll check. And he, and I, yes, I, I checked and I had 22 cases and I was like, and he's like, um, yeah, I'll take them all. And I was like, what? 
He goes, I'll take them all. I was like, uh, and he goes, I need them by Monday. And this, he called me on Wednesday. And so I was like, mm-hmm. well, can you meet me in Delaware? And he's like, yeah, we, we can do that. And so we, uh, we did the transfer and, and for it. So I was like, okay, great. Uh, we've sold an entire barrel, but it's like, okay, great. I won't have another one until December. Right. I mean, it, it I don't blame, him. I mean, it's, it was just so good. And but one of the things I, I wanted to do, and I reached out to Flying Fox to see if this was possible, was to uh, get a bottle of their Petit Verdot. Because mm-hmm. um, I wanted to see, you know, it's it's so rare that you get to taste the, you know, the product that the actual product or specific product that the whiskey was finished in. Yeah. Um, it's usually like, let's say it's a wine finish or a sherry finish, but you don't get to taste that sherry or that thing separately. Um, so I really wanted to taste it. And they're of course out of it too, because it's very, very popular. <laughs> and it's, a, it's also off season, I think, when I reached out. Uh, but uh yeah, you can be sure when the, when the next batch comes out, I am I'll drive up to Connecticut. I don't mind. Uh, it was delicious. Thank you. Um so <clears throat> the other uh one that I wanted to get to too was uh, to go back to the monitor, because you've got a blend based or named after the uh named after the uss monitor yeah uh, so yeah so uh when we started the distillery we were approached by a bunch of historians because everyone likes the story of the ironclad ships um and so this one guy had just written a book about uh the battle and uh then he also talked about it in the book the monitor and the css virginia in pop culture and in like the 1890s uh, in in New York, uh, which is where the monitor was built, um, there was a whiskey brand. It was it was a rye whiskey that was made in the 1890s. It was called the Monitor Blend, and so he actually had found the advertisement for the Monitor Blend whiskey, our rye whiskey, um, and he had published it in the uh, in the book. And we're like, oh my gosh, we have to figure out a way to make that label to use that and make it into a label for our bourbon. Um, and so when we, so we have a high weeded, uh, mash bill. Um, and I was like, well, you know, although this isn't necessarily a blend, um, it would be really cool to kind of make this, uh, make this label into our own and kind of just pay homage to this previous whiskey brand. Um, and so my sister and our graphic designer went through and really worked at it. And I, I think came out with a really cool label, um, that we use the same font that they used. We use the same public or same uh, advertisement they use, but we changed rye to bourbon. Um, and and it, it, on the on the advertisement, it actually depicted the battle as well. And so, you know, what's better to how better way to use that than to put it on the label? So if you actually turn the bottle around, it's got the whole battle uh, on the inside of the label. So if you look through the bourbon, you see the. Um, you see the battle taking place in the, in the bourbon as well. So uh, yeah, it, it was just, you know, very cool things you find out when you're, when you're distilling and when you're getting to approach by historians of things you wouldn't know. And it's just, uh, I think the most fascinating thing was uh, we had no idea that that brand existed and that the fact that we're not the first people to think about naming a whiskey brand after the ironclads was just super cool to us um, that it, it we, you know, there's no such thing as original thought, um, and that, but we were, you know, it was just super cool that it, uh, happened like that. 
Yeah, it's, I mean, it's one of those, it's weird. It's one of those battles that's like, it's, I feel like it was almost considered more important at the moment that it happened rather than historically, as opposed to other battles that are, you know, look back on it's like, wow, that was a really huge turning point or something, but it didn't necessarily seem so yeah. at the time. Um, well, I mean, it did change naval warfare forever because exactly, yeah. you could never you could never build another ship out of wood because you you were outclassed. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, although the battle ended in a stalemate because these two ships couldn't they didn't have weaponry that could penetrate each other's hull. So, um, yeah, it was, I mean, it it was important, but it was a stalemate, which is kind of funny. Absolutely, I mean, it in a similar kind of twist. I live uh, up of McQueen's in in New York and. I lived by a fort that was built uh, around, I think it was built around the time of the civil war. And, um, but it was also in the time when munitions upgraded, let's say, <laughs> particularly uh, missile munitions. Uh-huh. And they built about 90% of the fort uh, based on what was existing. And then <laughs> with the last 10% remaining uh, that new, you know, uh, what do you call it? The new, I don't know, thing, the word for the thing that flies through the air, um, <laughs> the new ballistic <laughs> comes out ammun- yeah, so the new, the new ballistic comes out and, um, turns out the walls that they built are of no use against it just crumbles into pieces. So it becomes a training fort almost immediately. It's never used in combat. Um, it's also, I mean, it, it's on the mouth of the Long Island sound. It's not seeing combat anyway, Yeah, but, um, but it's, it was just a funny coincidence there, but um, maybe I'm also pushing the connection too hard, but it's also, I think, fu- a funny coincidence that, you know, you took so much from from learning from Colin at, at Kings County, which is, of course, in the Naval Yards in New York. And it's likely I'd have to check this, but it's likely where we're close to near where the monitor was built. So the, the monitor was built in Greenpoint. Um, yeah. yeah. So it was it, there. There's a there's a whole. So John, John Erickson. Uh, was was the guy who designed the the USS Monitor, and so there's a whole. I don't think there's a museum, but there's a plaque in Greenpoint of where the uh, shipyard was, where they built it. And so the reason for that is my brother lives in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. Um, mm-hmm. So he also designed our logo, uh, our 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 uh, our yeah, we'll call it a logo, um, which is our anchor with the with the column still on it. Um, so. He was in Brook. He was in Greenpoint. We were in Newport News, so which was another reason we called it Ironclad because we had that historical factor, and then it was also we're a family business. So it's you know me, my dad, my sister, and then my brother helps out from time to time with uh, with logos and branding and stuff like that. Absolutely. Again, I love the history. I love the connections there. Um, I know we are getting to where we are actually at the top of the hour. Um, I don't want to keep it too long, but uh, I'd have one last question, which I I ask of certain states only, which was. Uh, you know, you talked earlier about how the the city of Newport News had to change their regulations. Like you, you work with them to change the regulations because you were the first distillery to really be downtown, and and that all needed to change. Uh, on the larger scale, with Virginia being a control state, a liquor control state, did you run into any issues uh, creating distillery because of that? And have you had any issues since then? So control state has its pluses and minuses. Um, the plus is uh, we have a distributor that that for the entire state that costs us nothing to find and they do all the legwork. Um, I mean, obviously we do have to do our own advertising. We have to do our own marketing, things like that. Um, 
but we were uh, we were lucky in the fact that we were one of the earlier distilleries and so when we went out to taste virginia on our product uh, on our whiskey uh we got 40 stores right at the start so that was huge for us because at the time we did not have a tasting room where people could just come in and buy our bourbon um Mm -hmm. so Fast forward a couple years, um, we were we were growing steadily in the ABC stores because people were were requesting our bottles, and then it would it would get shipped to that store, uh, you know, which was they ship, they ship an entire case, um, and then uh, they proclaimed September as Virginia Spirits Month, um, and so when they did that, they gave the top ten selling distilleries in the state that they would put them into all at the time three hundred sixty five stores in the state. So within three years, four years, it must've been three years of sell, of starting to sell an ABC. We were in every single ABC store in the state, um, which was fantastic for us. I mean, as a small business, um, you can't ask for anything better than that. Um, and we, we were only distributing in Virginia at the time. So all of our, all of our income was dependent on the state of Virginia. Um, so that, is incredibly helpful and, and was the reason we survived to, to this day. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, but, I mean, but with that being said, uh, you know, it's the Virginia ABC does take a percentage of it, but their percentage isn't any bigger than what any other distributor takes outside of Virginia. Um, Virginia, we sometimes make a little bit more, sometimes it's usually, it usually, it breaks about even with any distributor we use. Um, so, you know, there's, there's pluses and minuses to it. Uh, there's a, there's certain events that would be easier without, um, without Virginia ABC, or there'd be running the tasting room, which, which only allow, I mean, I would say the only negative would be running our tasting room, we're only allowed to serve three ounces per person per day. So uh, if you want to come to the distillery, we can serve you three cocktails uh, or a tasting flight. Um, And then it's like, all right, well, thank you for coming. You can hang out here, but you can't drink anymore. Um, It's not the worst thing. We don't necessarily want to be a bar. Um, So we've been able to kind of pivot our own business model to maximize the potential of our tasting room, which I think we do a pretty good job of. Um, so that being said, yes, it has its pluses and minuses. I think we're okay. We're pretty happy with, uh, Virginia ABC and, um, we don't necessarily, I mean, like, although the private or, uh, the, uh, model of ABC is kind of antiquated, um, it's working. Okay. I, I think it works. Okay. I mean, that again, it's fair. It's. I know for, for some states and for some distilleries, it's been kind of a hindrance to be in that kind of a state. But it, yeah, it sounds for you like it, it worked out about as well as it could. So that's like, I mean, for us, yeah. we are we're in the southeastern court, corner of Virginia uh, mm-hmm. to get to Bristol, Virginia is like a six hour drive. We're in the ABC store in Bristol, Virginia. Now, if it wasn't if, if we if it wasn't a control state, would we be in that ABC store? Probably not. Or would we be in a liquor store in Bristol? Probably not. <laughs> right, right. So, it would be, be more trouble than it was worth to get there. Exactly. You couldn't justify driving six hours to deliver a case of bourbon. But right. um, no, I mean, it's it, I mean, it's just in New York. I mean, like 
the nice thing is, is we can kind of pick and choose and we can be in the city and that can be enough for us to just, just be for New York and not, we don't have to worry about the rest of the state. And then if, you know, if we need, if we have a demand for Saratoga, we could, we could send a rep out there and, and push a couple liquor stores there, but it's just, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I guess it's what, since it's all we've known or since what we knew from the beginning, we were used to it, but not necessarily, I mean, it had it been a different scenario, maybe we would have never entered Virginia, you know? Hey, that's, that's fair as well. And yeah, with New York, yeah, you can do the city or everything else is kind of two markets. <laughs> yeah. It's two markets. I did see, um, you have some distribution here in, in Brooklyn. Correct. Um, yeah. So, uh, I'm going to see what they have there. Of course I checked first for the flying Fox they're out, but I will check for uh, some of the other stuff too. Um, perfect. So, you know, Owen, um, thank you so much for taking the time to come on, uh, talk about ironclad. I'm, I'm really excited about this distillery, about your distillery, about what you're doing with different varietals of corn and, um, experimentation with finishings and mash bills. It's, it's fun. It seems like you're having fun doing it, which is you know, the best thing to, to hear from a distillery, you want them to yeah. be having fun because it comes through in the whiskey. Well, that's, that's the nice thing about it being family run and that I don't have anyone to, I don't have to answer to anyone in the distillery. Uh, whenever <laughs> I want to do something, I just do it. And then I just tell them that that's what I'm doing. And so uh, like, you know, as far as different finishes go, I, I currently have, I'm doing a barbecue sauce finished bourbon, um, which could definitely be a failure. Um <laughs> But we'll see. <laughs> so keep your keep your eyes peeled for a barbecue sauce finished bourbon. Maybe it's the next way, next hot thing. <laughs> I I'll be honest. There's a a burnt ends whiskey over oh, yeah? in I, I think it's in um in either England or or Scotland. It's it's a blend that's you know kind of barbecue, and I really want to try it because like God, I love burnt ends. So um I'm <laughs> open. Yeah. I'll try it. I'll there try you go. It. All right. Cool. I'll get you a sample uh, as soon as it gets emptied. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> um, so in, in the meantime, um, you know, hold on with me for a second after we finish the recording. Yeah, of course. Um, but uh, in the meantime, where can people find you and Ironclad? So you can find us at ironcladdistillery.com. We can ship to 41 different states. Um, there's a sh- there's a shipping tab on there. Um, follow us on all social medias. Uh, we've got Ironclad Distillery on Instagram and Facebook. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that covers everything. Come down and then come down and see us at the distillery in Newport News. It's a, we've got a really great tasting room. Awesome. We'll do, I hope to do so. Uh, as, I mean, as soon as I can, I'm hoping got a lot of whiskey trips coming up, but uh, I will try. And, um, you know, there'll be in the show notes for this episode, links to the website, to uh, the shipping site, to all social media um, and to tasting notes of uh, the products I got to try. Um, again, Owen, thank you so much. And uh, it's been another episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Thanks, David.